Lamentations chapter 3 I am the man who has seen affliction, under the rod of his wrath. He is driven and brought into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for those arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence. When it is laid on him, let him put his mouth on the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways, And return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. And you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us. Killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud. So that no prayer can pass through. 
You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies, without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called your name, O Lord. From the depth of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. Their lips, thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they are sitting and they are rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Hi, everyone. For those of you who are joining online and might not already know me, my name is Paul Lewis. I've been attending here at Canterbury Gardens for quite some time, and I'm also a ministry support worker who works with Shabu to help things ticking along here, even in the midst of this COVID season that we find ourselves in. And it's a privilege today to be journeying with you through Lamentations chapter 3. Now, I think when I normally start a talk, I'd probably start with something like, I hope you've really been enjoying our series on Lamentations so far, but that doesn't really seem like the quite the, quite the right introduction for Lamentations, because Lamentations is a confronting and a very challenging book to study. My eldest son, Caleb, has started reading a series of storybooks that many of you will be familiar with. He's looking at the Charlie Brown series at the moment. He was beavering away through my father-in-law's house and he came across about 40 classic Charlie Brown storybooks. And it's awesome when he reads them because you just get these constant little chuckles, laughter, sounds of delight as he works through each story. They've each got a beginning, a middle and an end, and it all ties up in a neat little story, then he puts it down and he moves on to the next one. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we can approach it a little bit like an oversized storybook, a big collection of stories that we might be able to draw out a moral or two along the way. But if that is our view of the Bible, then we can really struggle when we come to books like Lamentations, because there isn't an obvious storyline or a plot, there isn't any real sense of humour, that's for sure, and it seems confronting and overwhelmingly sad at times, and there just isn't that happy ending at the end. I wonder if that's been a little bit of your experience as you've worked through Lamentations already this series. It's a good reminder that when we come to the Bible, we need to start looking at the text with a different lens a lens that looks to see what the text is revealing to us about God. That is what sets the Bible apart from any other book. 
The Bible is the living word of God that reveals to us the truth about who God is. And in Lamentations 3, we see some foundational truths about who God is through the words and the experiences of the author. First, in verse 1 to 18, we're given one of the most confronting and hard-to-swallow aspects of who God is, that God is a God of wrath. We love talking about God being God of light and a God of love and a God of peace, but in verse 1 to 18, we have to wrestle with this sobering concept of God's wrath. Then second, in verse 19 to 36, we hit the centerpiece of this entire book, right the central element of it, which at the same time tells us that although he's a God of wrath, he's a God of hope. And then lastly, in verse 37 through to 66, at the end of the chapter, the author reminds us that our God is a God who redeems. So that's your little roadmap this morning as we come to look at Lamentations chapter 3 and we look at who God is. We're going to see that he's a God of wrath, but at the same time he's a God of hope because he's a God who redeems. And as we reflect on these attributes of God and these characteristics of God, you can't help but be given an incredible reminder of the truth that irrespective of our sin and our circumstances, we find hope and salvation when we turn to God. So let's get into it and see what Lamentations 3 has to say to us about who God is. Well, as I've flagged, at the start in the first 18 verses, we have to wrestle with this idea of God's wrath. And you might be asking me, well, where do I get this focus on God's wrath from? And the answer is you can see it right in the very first verse. In verse 1, it says, I'm the man who has seen the affliction by the rod of his wrath. So right from the outset, we see in this particular chapter of Lamentations, it's written from the perspective of a man who personifies or represents the nation of Israel. And this man introduces himself as the one who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. And from verse 2 to 18, we're then given illustrations or descriptions of how the Lord's wrath manifested itself against the people. And so before we go any further, I think we need to, to pause and to stop for a moment and make sure we have a good understanding of the idea of God's wrath. Because it's not a topic that makes its way into many sermons on a Sunday morning. God's wrath is the manifestation of God's hatred and anger towards sin. It's not revenge. It's not getting even. And so it's nothing like human desires to get even or retribution of some kind. It instead involves action from God that is motivated by his own holiness and purity. This is why God's wrath goes hand in hand with his judgment and action towards sin. And the author of Lamentations, in, on many occasions, has already acknowledged the sin of his people before God. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. 
And in this chapter, further on in verse 39, he says, Why should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? The author knows that God's people have sinned greatly over a long period of time, and now they are experiencing God's righteous anger towards that sin and his judgment over that sin. And so in verse 2, the author says, He has driven me away because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. He's driven me away and he's made me walk in darkness rather than light. The idea of darkness is a common association in the Bible with God's judgment. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Why do you long for the day of the Lord? It's the day that represents his coming judgment. It says that day will be darkness, not light. From the outset of chapter 3, we are given a very clear picture of a people who have sinned and who have rejected God and who, as a result, now stand in the darkness of his judgment and therefore facing the full weight of the rod of God's wrath. And the picture of that wrath that we are given in verse 4 through to verse 18 is indeed a sobering picture. In verse 4 to 9, we see that God's wrath is inescapable. The man is described as being besieged or enveloped by it. And then he says that he has been walled in with chains and his prayers have been shut out and his ways have been blocked. When the time of God's judgment of sin comes, the sobering reality is that there is simply no escape. No one is immune or exempt or able to avoid it. It is an inescapable reality. Then in verse 10 to 15, we see that God's wrath is overpowering. It's like a lion in waiting, it's described as a powerful, that, uh, an animal that's clearly more powerful than mere man. It's also described as an arrow that's fixed on its target, it's driven into the kidneys, it says, a, a fatal blow. Lastly, in verse 16 to 18, God's wrath is described as all-consuming, as a man is now described as carrying in ashes with his soul bereft of all peace. He's forgotten what happiness is, and he reaches that place in verse 18 where he says, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. It's as though he has nothing left. He cannot escape God's wrath. He has been overpowered entirely by God's wrath and he has been completely consumed by God's wrath. And even more confronting than the picture we see in these verses in verse 1 to 18 is the reality that all of us stand under that same wrath until we encounter and place our faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul made this point in his letter to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he said, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, deserving of wrath. We have all a built-in nature that turns its back on God. 
that rejects him, that places ourselves on the throne. We all fall short of his perfect standard of holiness and purity. We are all sinners, and so we are all, therefore, deserving of that same wrath. And the Bible is clear that there is a time coming when God will judge sin once and for all. And at that time, his wrath will be revealed in full and it will be inescapable. It will be overpowering and it will be all-consuming. You can see in these verses this harsh reminder that sin brings all people under God's wrath. It brings all people under God's wrath because we are all sinners. So as we first come to Lamentations 3 and we wrestle with this concept of God's wrath, and you have to wrestle with it, don't you? Because it's a jarring, confronting concept. But as we read about it in this description in verse 1 to 18, it's a healthy thing to let the author's words cause us to turn and look at our own hearts and to ask him to reveal the sin that might be in our hearts and might have taken roots in our soul. Because we all have a sin problem, whether we acknowledge it or not. It might be sin which we have wrestled with for some time. It might be sin that we've tried to ignore or to push to the back of our minds or hearts so that we pretend it's not there. It's most likely sin that's only known between ourselves and our God. It might just be an unwillingness to surrender our lives fully and wholly to him without reservation. Lamentations 3 starts by reminding us that whatever our sin is, it is serious in the eyes of God. And so it needs to lead us to the place where we recognize our need for a saviour. And this is where we come to the next section in verse 19 to 36, where we're reminded that although God is a God of wrath, he's at the same time a God of hope. See, this section is not just at the centre of chapter 3. It's at the centre of the entire book of Lamentations. And it's important to, for us to appreciate that point because amongst all the chaos and the devastation that's going on or is recorded for us in this book, this message in these verses is the centrepiece that undergirds everything else that is going on. See, the beginning of the chapter started with a man who had seen affliction and a description of that affliction. And the same word affliction then starts this section in verse 19. But now the man is instead reflecting on those afflictions. And as he reflects on the affliction, by saying these words in verse 19 to 24, they're quite powerful. And so I'm going to read them out for us here. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. They are amazing verses when you consider 
the journey and the imagery of God's wrath that we have just worked our way through in verse 1 to 18. And his final words in verse 18 were that his endurance had perished and that he had no hope left in the Lord. And yet as he reflects on that affliction, he finds hope. And he finds hope in the never-ending, never-changing faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord. It's the faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord that means God is a God of hope. Now, you might rightly ask the question, well, how can he be a God of wrath on the one hand, but a God of hope at the same time? But this is the amazing nature of God, that although he has an absolute righteous anger towards sin, That anger towards sin will never change or limit in any way his steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. God is holy and so he will rightly judge sin, but that judgment of sin will never take away from his love for his people. And because of that understanding of God's never-ending, never-changing, steadfast love and faithfulness, look at what the author then says in verse 24. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. This isn't just head knowledge that the author is saying. These are words from the soul. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, this is a man who has spent the first 18 verses pretty much telling us everything he has lost to the extent where his teeth was ground into the gravel. He was cowering in the ashes. But despite all that he has lost, he still has hope because the Lord is his portion. In other words, the Lord is all he needs. He can lose everything else. But at the end of the day, if he still has God, then he has enough. Because he will still have and experience and know in his soul the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. And so he still has hope. It's a challenging thing to be in a place where you can have nothing left, where you can have lost everything, but have God and for your soul to say, That is enough. God is enough for me. He is my portion. So that if I have him, I still have hope. I wonder if your soul says in the same way, the Lord is my portion. I will hope in him. No matter what you may have lost recently or experienced or struggled with or grieved, can the depths of your soul still cry out, the Lord is my portion, I will hope in him. The author's descriptions of God here seem to totally change in light of this hope. In verse 25, he says, the Lord is good for those who wait for him. In verse 26, he says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
There's that important word salvation that we've needed so much as we've been focusing on sin. Now he's coming to the point where he's recognizing that his only hope of salvation is in God. And it's that salvation which gives him hope. Then in verse 31, it says, For the Lord, he won't cast off forever, but though he cause grief, and we have all faced that grief at times, haven't we? Although he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The author knew that God's wrath did not change God's love. And that because of that steadfast love, there was a time coming that was worth waiting for when salvation would come. And the truth is that that salvation has now come through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's on and through the cross that we see the perfect expression of God, both displaying his wrath against sin, but at the same time, his steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. As Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross on our behalf, by enduring the death that we deserve, but he voluntarily took that on himself out of his love and faithfulness to his people. This is why, despite our sin and despite our built-in sinful nature and the way we fall short constantly of his perfect and holy standard, despite the fact that we are under his wrath, God's steadfast love offers us hope because Jesus provides us with a way out. For he bore God's wrath on the cross. I wonder if you have placed your hope in God and his steadfast love yourself. If you examine your heart, is God and his love enough for you? You see, I think we have to wrestle with God's wrath before we really come to an understanding of the hope we have in God. Because the greater our awareness of our own sinfulness and of God's judgment of that sin and of our need for a saviour, the tighter we will cling to God and the realisation that we can only find that salvation in him. That he is our only hope because Jesus paid the price for our sins and he completed that saving work on the cross. So God is a God of wrath, but at the same time, he is a God of hope because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. But then lastly, in this last section in verse 37 to 66, we see that God is a God who redeems. Now in verse 37 to 42, the author acknowledges that what he ultimately needs is forgiveness. This is best summarized in verse 42, where he says, We have transgressed and rebelled, and you, God, have not forgiven. All sin is ultimately a heart issue, which needs God's forgiveness. The consequence and absence of that forgiveness is then illustrated in verse 43 to 54. First, the author feels alienated from God as he describes God wrapping himself up in anger and with clouds so that no prayer can pass through. And secondly, the author is subject to the attacks of the enemy as they are described as opening their mouths against him and then devastation and destruction flows. Without God's forgiveness, 
we therefore find ourselves alienated from God and vulnerable to the dangers of this world as we are left to our own devices and we are powerless against the attacks of the enemy. It then culminates in what reads like the lowest point in this chapter, in verse 52 to 54. And I know he's already been at some low points so far, but in these verses he says, I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive in the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head and I said, I am lost. It's an incredibly powerful illustration of the effect of sin. It grabs hold of our life and it's like it buries us and can make it feel like there's no way to escape. We are left without, we feel as though we are left without any hope and that all is lost. And without Christ, that's exactly where we are. We are alive, but it's like we are living in the pit with no way of climbing out because we stand buried by the weight and the consequences of our own sin. And look at where the author then turns, though, in verse 55 to 58. For he knows the weight of God's wrath, but he has not lost sight of the hope that he has in God and his steadfast love. And so we read these words. It says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you, and you said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. What a turnaround. He turns to God from the depths of the pit. And rather than God wrapping himself up in clouds, as I described earlier, and making sure no prayers pass through, God is now, is now described as, as drawing near and saying those comforting words, do not fear. Now, why shouldn't he fear? Because so much of our journey so far has been about how he's been trampled by his enemies and found himself in utter despair. But the difference now are the words in verse 58 where it says, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Having turned to the Lord, God is now the Redeemer who has lifted him from the pit, who has delivered him from the pursuers, who has taken up his cause. God is the one who now stands for the man who is at work setting him free and giving him new life. And so we read in these final verses that God has seen the wrongs of his people. He's heard about the taunts. And in verse 64 to 66, he says he will repay them. He will curse their enemies. He will pursue them and he will destroy them. The author is now painting a picture of deliverance as God redeems his people from the pit by offering them forgiveness, by lifting them up, by delivering them from their slavery, by offering them hope and providing them with a new life and salvation. You can't help but see the powerful parallels in these verses with the words of King David that he wrote in Psalm 103 where he says, and many of you will know these words very well, 
He says, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. This is who God is. He is a holy God, which means all who sin stand under his holy and righteous wrath. But he's a God of hope because of his steadfast love for us. And that means that in him we have forgiveness of sins. And when we turn to him to seek that forgiveness, he promises to redeem our life from the pit by offering us grace and forgiveness that we simply do not deserve and setting us free. All this is solely because of Christ. For he is the one who is subject to the taunts of the enemy. He is the one who was the victim of their plots. He was the one who was hunted down and even though it was without cause, he was the one who was crucified and bore the full wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. He was the one who demonstrated the full extent of God's steadfast love and faithfulness by voluntarily allowing himself to be nailed to that cross. And he was the one who was then buried in a pit, in a tomb, and covered by stone. And he was the one who was then lifted out of that pit by God and raised from the dead so that through his resurrected life, all who believe in him might be forgiven and redeemed, raised up out of the pit and given new life. What a God we serve. A God who promises to redeem all those who turn to him through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder how you and I might need God to do a redeeming work in our life, to lift us out of the pit of our sin, to set us free from the struggles that we might be burdened by, to help us to know and experience the life and deliverance and victory that can only be found in him. I think the more we explore and take in who God is, the more we realise our hope and salvation can only be found in him. And what we can see in Lamentations 3 is that God is a God of wrath and that sin brings all people under that wrath. But at the same time, he's a God of hope because that sin does not change his steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. And because of that love, He's also a God who redeems. He doesn't leave us trapped in the pit of our sin, but he delivers us from that sin through faith in Jesus Christ. He's a God of wrath, a God of hope, but a God who redeems. May we draw near to him in the midst of our sin and our struggles and take hope in his steadfast love and let God be our redeemer. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you that you are a God who is holy and perfect 
And Lord, therefore you judge sin, but you didn't leave us in our sin. You provided us with hope through Jesus Christ. And you enabled, you sent him to the cross to enable us to be forgiven from our sins so that we might know your redemption. We might be set free from that sin and forgiven from that sin and offered a new start and relationship with you. Lord, may we draw near to you all the more closer as we recognise you as the God of hope whose love and faithfulness is never ending and who wants to redeem our life and give us a new hope and a future. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys.